Welcome to the Gregory Diggout Podcast. Let me start by a little way of review for what we've been talking about, because basically over the last two or three weeks and today, you could summarize what I'm trying to say in four statements. Now, I'm going to I'm going to dig a little deeper into the fourth statement today, but you can summarize what I'm talking about in four statements. Here they are. Number one, the generosity of God is the foundation of our faith. The generosity of God is the foundation of our faith. In other words, everything we believe should flow out of this belief that the goodness and generosity of God is outrageous and it will never stop. Uh, The generosity of God is the foundation of our faith Uh, we saw in Peter's life when God gave him uh, when Jesus gave him this great catch of fish. He said, put your net, put your net down into the deep. And Jesus, Jesus at Jesus word, Peter did it. And he had this great collection of fish. And what did he do? He he began to believe Peter became a believer. He became a disciple. He left his nets and he followed Jesus with his entire life, all because of the generosity of God. So the generosity of God is the foundation for our faith or the foundation of our faith. Number two, the generosity of God is the foundation for a bitter free life or the foundation for healthy emotions. The generosity of God is the foundation for a bitter free life. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15, it says, don't let anyone fall short or become inferior to the grace of God, lest any one of you have a bitterness, lest a root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and defiles many. In other words, a root of bitterness, the emotions of bitterness and resentment will cause trouble in your life and will defile many. But why do we why what makes us bitter is when we live a life that is inferior to the generosity of God or the grace of God. He says, don't come short or don't. The word short means inferior. Don't live a life inferior to the grace of God. Like you like God has given us a life of grace, a life of his generosity, a life of his free favors flowing in our lives that we don't we don't want to turn down. We don't want to choose some other way of living. This is the way to live, to live in the in the goodness of God, the grace of God, the favor of God, the generosity of God to wake up every day expecting him to be generous, not expecting him to run out, but expect him to run over, to run you over with his goodness. The Bible says my cup runs over. He I I don't believe you know how some people say, well, are you one of those, uh, you know, cup half full or cup half empty people? You know, like like if you live with a cup, if you think like a cup half empty, that's negative and you think a cup half full, that's positive. But we don't have to live in either of those. We're not supposed to live in a half empty or a half full cup. Our cup runneth over. We're supposed to live in the overflow of God's goodness and generosity. I'm expecting my cup to run over. And what's it going to run over into? It's going to run over into somebody else who doesn't who hasn't tasted yet, who hasn't experienced it yet, who hasn't felt it yet, who hasn't lived in it yet. My cup's going to run over with so much goodness, so much of God's generosity, so much of God's favor that it's going to touch every person I come in contact with. You know, we're supposed to live in that. We're supposed to live in an overflow of life like like there's not a religious bone left in my body. Now, I, I now there were a lot of religious bones in my body, self-righteous bones, you know, legalistic bones. There are not, there are none left there, I'm just like this, man. There's no bones. I just like I'm just I'm, what's <laughs> I live in the overflow. What I'm trying to say is I don't live by a set of rules. I don't live trying to pray more, trying to read more, trying to do better. I live with such a heart full of gratitude for what God's given me that it causes that to overflow into your life. So when you meet up with me, you're going to meet up with some goodness. You're going to meet up with some blessing. You're going to meet up with a word of wisdom. You're going to meet up with an answer. I'm going to come with a solution. It's going to flow out of my life. And that's how we're supposed to live. Now, don't get me wrong. There are sometimes some other stuff flows out of me. But I, I've learned about my life. I've, I've kind of self-assessed myself you know, like we should always be self-aware and sort of assess ourselves without judging ourselves, without condemning ourselves. I sort of assess myself that I got to work really hard to be mean. Like I don't have like it doesn't come easy for me to be mad. It doesn't come easy for me to be bad. 
like I used to. Don't get me wrong. Like last week was really a bad one for me, but (laughs) it used to. (laughs) But I mean, you cut me up, you cut me into a million pieces and every one of those pieces are going to scream out once you cut them up and lay them all out there. Every one is going to every one of those pieces is going to still shout out. God is good. He loves me. He's on my side. He's for me. Oh, man. I'm just trying to tell you, this is this is this is the space that I live in. I don't live in this ritual space where I sit, kneel, stand. I don't do the religious rituals. I pray every day, but it's because I'm full of gratitude. I, you know, I worship God because I'm 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 in awe of him. I'm not worshiping him to get into his presence. I'm worshiping him because I'm already in his presence. I'm home. Not I'm not in his presence because I'm a preacher. I'm not in his presence because I've been a Christian over 30 years. I'm in his presence by the blood because the blood of Jesus has been shed. I'm in his presence all the time and he lives inside of me. And I'm just saying me because I'm talking about me, but I'm talking about you, too. Everything that I'm saying about me is true about you. The only difference is I might know it more than, you know, I might realize it more. But it's not any more true about me than it is about you. If you're born again, it's as true about you as it is about me. My life is a discovery of what what is already true. I'm not trying to discover things that aren't true. I'm I'm not trying to discover things that, uh, that that aren't true about me. I'm reading the Bible to discover what God already says about me and what he already says about you. Like, I'm not giving up on you. You know why? Because you're going to make it. Why? Because God, what God began, he'll finish. He's the author and the finisher of your faith. Why should I give up on you if God's not done with you? Why should you give up on me if God's not done with me? I'm still a work in progress. Come on, somebody can say amen, but amen yourself, too, because you're a work in progress. You're a work in progress. We're all a work in progress. Okay, so I said, the four things here they are. So so number one, the generosity of God is the foundation of our faith. I, and then and then the generosity of God is the foundation of a bitter free life. Like if whatever you do to me can only make me bitter if I give you power, if I'm giving you the power to control how I feel, then I will eventually I will eventually fail because you will fail me. And if you give me the power to determine your happiness, you'll eventually be unhappy because you if you give me the power to keep you happy, I'm going to I'm going to let you down at some point and you're going to let me down at some point. And that's okay because that's humanity. We're all humans, but God will never let you down. So your happiness should never be tied to how I treat you. And my happiness should never be tried, should never be tied to how you treat me. My happiness is tied to the goodness of God. Oh, man, your emotions, you know, instead of being controlled by negative emotions, when you believe that you will see the goodness of God, when you believe God will turn it around, he says all things work together for good. For those that love him and, and you do love God, you don't let the devil lie to you and say, oh, you don't really love God. If you loved God, you would do this. If you love God, you would do that. No, we love him because he first loved us. The fact is, is that if you believe God loves you, then you do love him. All he the way to how can I put this the way. The way the thing that 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 demonstrates your love for God is believing his love for you. It really boils down to that, like. How can I prove that I love God? Like uh, how many souls do I need to get saved? How many people do I need to preach to? How many obedient things do I need to do before I finally love God? You can't put a number to that because you can't do enough because that's not what demonstrates your love for God. Let me just help you. If you would just believe God's love for you, 
and just accept it, that God loves you unconditionally. Just believing that is an act of love back towards him. It's it really is liberating. It's really set me free because I used to think, well, when at what point have I loved God enough? And, and maybe that's just there. You never get to the point where you love God enough. Well, then you're never going to get to a point where Romans 8:28 works, where, where all things work together for good to those that love him. Like, how much do you need to love him before all things work together for good? Have you ever thought about that? Like nothing in the Bible doesn't make sense. There's just a lot of preachers that don't make sense of it. There's nothing in the Bible that doesn't make sense. There's just a lot of preaching that doesn't make sense. But there's nothing in the Bible that doesn't make sense if you understand God's nature and if you understand the character of God, he is good. God is love. How is this going to happen? We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those that love him. So, you know, I I, I saw I saw you last week, but 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 I didn't see you the week before. So you must not love God enough because you didn't come to church three weeks in a row and you didn't give in the offering because I saw the bucket pass and you didn't put anything in it. <laughs> so you don't love God. So but I, you know, like the Pharisee said, I, 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 I think he, he, he started out his prayer. We talked about this Wednesday night. Remember the two guys went up to pray in Luke, Luke 18. One was a sinner and one was the Pharisee and the Pharisee and the Pharisee said he prayed father, I or he said he didn't say father, but he said, God, I thank you. So he started out good. But then the first thing he said was, God, I thank you that I'm not like this guy. (laughs) You talk about like not self-aware, like totally unaware. Oh, God, I thank you. That's three words. He said, God, I four words. God, I thank you. Those are great words to start prayer with. But the next words just just do this guy in, man. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Swindlers, unjust adulterers or even like this peon next to me who's praying. And then he gives his list. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes on all I get. Uh, And but the tax collector, the sinner, would not even lift up his his head. But was beating his breast, saying, God. Be merciful to me. You see. If we think that all of our doing. Proves our love for God, then the then the Pharisee was loving God better than anybody. But he wasn't really the one who looks to God, the one who trusts in God is the one who loves God. Because Romans 828 works for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, and you can't love him enough if you're measuring it that way. Just believe in his love for you. That's loving God. I know other preachers will tell you, but you're not you, but they're not your pastor. I am. If, If I'm not, if I'm not, if I'm not, if I'm not your pastor, we got to help find who your pastor is. But I'm just telling you. The only way to really know for sure is to simply believe in his love for you. Because the reflex is we love him because he first loved us. So the more you know he loves you, then that's the proof that you're really loving him because he first loved us. He first loved us. First John 419 says, I don't want to get caught up in that, but The generosity of God is the foundation of our faith. The generosity of God is the foundation of a bitter free life or healthy emotions, healthy emotions. And the generosity of God is the foundation for our lifestyle. Now, this is where I really want to I don't want to camp here. I want to get into the fourth one. But the generous the generosity of God is the foundation of our lifestyle. I want you to I want to take you back to first. Timothy, chapter six, verse 17, first Timothy, chapter six, verse 17. So 
we're saying four things, wrapping everything up in four things that the generosity of God is the foundation of our faith. The generosity of God is, a, is the foundation for a bitter free life or a, a, a motion, uh, freedom in our emotions. The generosity of God is the foundation for our lifestyle, our lifestyle. Here's lifestyle. Now, instruct those that are rich. Verse 17, he says, instruct those that are rich. Now, notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say instruct those that are rich not to be rich. So there's nothing wrong with being rich. Being rich isn't our goal. Being rich isn't. The, that's not what we're we don't give so that we can be rich. But some people are gifted with the ability to to make wealth. And that gift is available to anybody that wants to accept it. You, you can produce income and you can produce wealth. You can be wise with your money and put God first and follow his wisdom. And you can't fail, really treat people right and treat people. If you have a business like it's all about the way you treat people, it's all about the, the giving, the sowing seeds, planting and and reaping and, and treating people well and and, you know, being somebody who's who's who wants the best for your client not the best for your checkbook, not the best for your bank account. But if you want the best for your client, you're always going to have clients. If you just want the best for you and it's all a show and it's all fake, that'll eventually show up in how you treat people. But he says, instruct those that are rich in this present world. What's he telling us not to do? He's saying, don't be conceited. Pride is the problem. Money is not the problem. Pride is. Pride is the problem. Things are not the problem. Pride is the problem. He says, instruct those that have a lot, however you want to use whatever you want to translate this word rich to instruct those that are rich in this present world not to be conceited, not to be arrogant, not to put their trust in what they have but to fix their hope, not on the uncertainty of riches. Don't fix your hope on what you have. Fix your hope on God. And what does God do as you fix your hope on him? He richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Now, that little phrase right there is what Satan hates, I think, more than just about anything like What is what is wrong with Christians? What's what's so wrong is we just don't read the Bible. And we get rid of the verses that aren't convenient. And that's not like I can take any verse in the Bible and I can show you the goodness of God in that verse. I will find the generosity, the goodness, the love of God in every verse, because God is love. And if every word, if every scripture is breathed by God, then every scripture has a breath of love in it. Every single one of them. And he says, God richly supplies us with all things to enjoy, which part of this verse that gets criticized. Do we want to tackle first? Because (laughs) preachers criticize the reality. How about the fact that he says it's God who richly supplies? People say, oh, no, God doesn't richly supply. Stop. Put Stop putting that on God. That's a prosperity preacher. Let me tell you something. First of all, there's this controversy of what is a prosperity preacher and what is a prosperity church. And what we need to realize is this, is that here's how God does things in third John, verse two, he says, beloved, I wish above all things that you would prosper and be in health, even as your soul prospers. Stay here in, in first Timothy, because I want to focus here. But I need you to understand that true prosperity, if taught correctly, is soul prosperity. It's having a healthy soul, because when you have a healthy soul, then that begins to spill over into every area of your life. If your mind and your emotions and your heart are healthy and God centered and Bible centered and flourishing with joy and peace and happiness, it's going to spill over into your health. The Bible says laughter does good like a medicine. It's going to spill over into your relationships. When you're happy, you're going to make other people happy. It's going to spill over into your generosity because God loves a cheerful giver. So I'm giving cheerfully and and man, happy is the one that gives and more blessed are you when you give than when you receive. So you're now you're perpetuating happiness by being generous. 
And then guess what happens by being generous? The generous man shall prosper, the Bible says. So prosperity is all about your soul. It's your mind to think, your heart to feel and your will to decide when you're making when you're making God based word based choices in your life, when you're filled with thought, with word based thoughts and when you're moved by word based, love based, compassion based emotions, you're prospering. Now, anybody, any preacher that reduces prosperity just to the concept of money, that's completely incorrect. But any person, any preacher that doesn't include the physical and financial part of our lives being successful, they're off base, too. It starts with soul prosperity, the mind, the will, the emotions, the heart. When that's flourishing, it infects every area of your life. And guess what? When you're when your mind and your heart is filled with resentment or bitterness, guess what? That affects everything in your life, too. Negative negativity affects everything. And so does positivity. Sickness in your soul affects everything you touch and health in your soul affects everything you touch. So if you're ever going to define me, well, oh, I heard your pastor is like a prosperity. Make sure you define what that means. That means soul prosperity. Make sure we get that right so that the devil doesn't have a heyday with you and with me. And then you leave the church because, oh, I heard you're this kind of wait, 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 what did I say? Well, it's not what it's what they're saying about you. Why are you living in some secondhand relationship with me? I don't want to have a secondhand relationship with you. If somebody comes to me about you with something negative, I don't, I'm not taking it. I'm not receiving it. I'm coming to you about it. I'm not listening to somebody else. So don't listen to somebody else about me. Don't listen to somebody else about me. Somebody, you know. <laughs> oh, man, I don't even want to get into some of, some of the stuff I've been criticized of. But like I've always say, I've always said whatever bad things you hear about me, I know way worse about me. <laughs> like, that's just being self-aware. It's being human. Like we're humans. We make mistakes. We blow it. We screw up. But God's too good to attach his goodness to our screw ups or our, our or our perfection or our or moral per perfection or our moral purity. Like it's better to be morally pure than morally impure. But God doesn't attach his goodness to the wagon of your purity. He attaches his goodness to his nature. He does you good because he's good. He didn't send Jesus when you deserved him. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. While we were sinners, he gave his son. We didn't do anything to get Jesus. So why all that? Why all of a sudden do we shift after we get saved? We shift into this mode like we have to earn everything from God. Now, we don't have to earn anything. From, you didn't earn your salvation. But so many. But I've heard preachers say you might lose it. And I got friends that, that believe that. And I I stand by the fact that salvation is a gift. It's a gift from God. And all my job is, is to receive it and just, you know, rather than question it, just kind of say thanks. You know, <laughs> just say, just say thank you. All right. Boy, we're not doing well today because I'm trying to get to number four here, but number three. So good. He richly supplies us. So God richly supplies. So where does your supply in life come from and how does he supply richly, which means abundantly, it means generously. And what does he supply us with? Heaven. Heaven is heaven. Part of what he supplies us with. Yeah. But the scripture isn't is not reducing the definition to one thing. It actually expands the definition to all things. He richly supplies us with what? All things. Does that include your spiritual life, your emotional life, your physical life, your relationship life, your financial life? 
Like who who are we to who are we to redefine what God has defined as all things? But here's the kicker. And here's what I where I really want you to get to a place of where you're living in this last word of this verse to enjoy. To enjoy that somehow, somehow we've bought into this false religious belief that that enjoyment of things and the enjoyment of life is somehow worldly and carnal and fleshly and evil and selfish and sinful. Let me tell you something. This is God's idea for you to enjoy life. It's God's idea for you to enjoy life. God wants you to enjoy. What enjoy what? All things that he richly supplies you with. So anything that God gives you, you should enjoy it. He gave you he gave you breath to breathe. Enjoy your breath. If you need a mint, take one so you can enjoy it better. But enjoy your breath. Like everything we have that's good came from God. He wants us to enjoy every bit of it. He wants you to enjoy Sunday. He wants you to enjoy Monday. He wants you to enjoy the morning and enjoy the evening. Enjoy the afternoon. He wants you to enjoy the company that you're with, the people that you come in contact with. He wants you to enjoy the times that are going bad for you and enjoy the times that are going good for you. God wants you to enjoy all things. He wants you to live a life of enjoyment. You say, well, is that that's 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 but how see, you don't have to pursue it. He's saying, here's the secret. Don't fix your hope on the uncertainty of riches, but fix your hope on God. He richly supplies you with all things to enjoy. But where our hope is not on the things, our hope is on the God. Fix your hope on God. Man, when I'm going through a bad day, my hope is on God. When I'm going through a good day, my hope is on him. My hope is in him no matter what. That's what causes me to enjoy whatever comes into my life. I can enjoy it. Because my hope is in God. If something bad happens, I'm my hope is in God that he's going to turn it around. I'm not embracing the bad. I'm just not afraid of it anymore. I'm not embracing the bad as God's will for my life, but I'm not afraid of the bad because God knows how to turn the bad into good. You you get a you start thinking this way and you're just going to be a happier person, period. It doesn't even your life doesn't have to. Nothing else has to change in your life for you to be happy except your perspective. The generosity of God is the foundation for our spiritual warfare. So I said everything summarized in these four things. The generosity of God is the foundation of our faith. The generosity of God is the foundation for our emotions and a bitter free life. The generosity of God is the foundation for our lifestyle. We can enjoy life because God is so generous. We can enjoy our lives even in the tough times. God's so generous that we know he's going to bring us through the tough times. And number four, the generosity of God is the foundation for our spiritual warfare. Let me show you what I mean by that. You see what the devil is really after is he is after your conscience. Satan wants you to live with a guilty conscience. He wants you to feel guilty all the time. He wants you to feel condemned. He wants you to feel like God's against you. He wants you to feel accused, to feel self-conscious, which is the feeling of being observed without being approved. Like you feel people are looking at you and they're judging you and you feel like when people say things, it's you take it personally as an accusation against you. And we hear the voices in our head accusing us. And Satan doesn't even use his voice anymore because you've gotten used to you've gotten used to yourself telling you these things. Satan has told you these things so long that you have finally begun to tell yourself these things. So Satan doesn't even have to work in your life because your own mind is doing the, de- the devil's dirty work for him. 
when you say things like and you say things to yourself and listen to lies like you're not enough. You never do enough. You'll never have enough. You don't say the right things. You don't measure up. You don't get it all done. You don't do enough for your children. You don't do enough for your parents. You don't do enough for others. You don't do as much as others do. You always seem to blow it. You always seem to fail. You always say things you regret. You get angry so easily. You think bad thoughts. You don't have the right clothes. You eat too much. You don't exercise. You don't pray enough. You don't read enough. You don't fast enough. You don't you're not Christian enough. You're not holy enough. You're not godly enough. These are the accusations of the devil. And we have heard them in first person. In other words, our mind has trained us to think these things about ourselves and we need to say enough is enough. I'm not going to accuse myself anymore. I'm not going to condemn myself anymore. Boy, if I could get this, what shall we say to these things? This is this is what it's all about. Go back to Romans 832. He says he says in verse 30, he says in verse 30, verse 31, what shall we say to these things? Here's what we should say to these things. What shall we say to these things? What should we say to these accusations that tell us you're not enough? You don't do enough. You're not holy enough. You're not godly enough. You're not. Uh, you, you, we, we feel shame and we feel we look at ourselves and we feel, man, I've fallen short and I've failed and I've blown it. And or others have done this to me. And we we can either take on this victim mentality and hearing accusations against other people or we hear accusations against ourselves and we condemn ourselves. And neither of them are God's will for your life. And we got to attack that. We have to attack the accusing thoughts, the, the thoughts that are accusing us. This is what's robbing us of the enjoyment of our of our salvation. The enjoyment of our Christianity is being ripped out right from underneath us because we're listening to condemning thoughts about ourselves or about others. So what should we say to these condemning thoughts? Romans 8, 1 says there is therefore now Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There is now there is therefore now right this moment, there is no condemnation. If you're born again, you're in Christ. And if you're in Christ, the devil can't condemn you. And if the devil can't condemn you, then you shouldn't condemn you. And if the devil can't condemn you and the devil can't condemn her or the devil can't condemn condemn him, then you shouldn't condemn him and you shouldn't condemn her because the de- God doesn't even condemn them. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ without Christ. Everybody's under condemnation. But so many Christians are they're born again. They're in Christ. They've been given this freedom but they're not experiencing it because their conscience is condemning them. Always reminding you of something you've done wrong, always reminding you of where you've fallen short, always reminding you of something you failed at, always nagging you, nagging you. This is over today. I declare war on the spirit of accusation against you. Let me tell you something. Condemnation, he says, there is now no condemnation. What is condemnation? It means you can't go forward. You can't build when they when 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 the when a city condemns a building. So the building is if you if you've ever heard of in in construction, a building has been condemned. It's still there, but it's been condemned. What does that mean? You can't build anything on it. You can't live in it. You can't occupy it. You can't do anything except tear it down completely. It's under condemnation. And this is what this is where Satan wants your soul to be under condemnation. You can't build anything on it. You can't occupy it. You can't enjoy it. You can't li- you can't live in it. You can't experience the good of it. All you can do is be torn down. That's what condemnation means, that you're only torn down, that you get up every day and you're and you're being torn down by yourself, torn down by the devil. You look in the mirror and you say you're not enough. You say to yourself, you're not enough. You look in your checkbook. It's not enough. You look in your bank account. It's not enough. You look at your health. It's not enough. You look at your wife. She's not enough. You look at your husband. He's not enough. You look at your kids. They need to do this better. You look at your parents. I wish they would have done that better. And what we have to do is realize that Satan is constantly accusing, 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 accusing. He is the Bible calls him the accuser of the brethren who accuses us day and night. Why? Because he knows that condemnation robs you of happiness. There's three reasons why the devil uses condemnation. He knows that condemnation robs us of happiness. Uh, man, I wish I had time to dig it. I do have time, actually. Look, wow. 
I got 13 minutes. Strap your seatbelt, baby, because we are going for a ride. Listen to what I'm saying. Condemnation. Satan uses condemnation because condemnation makes you unhappy. It makes you a miserable person. Romans 14:22 says, happy is the man that does not condemn himself. Happy is the man that does not condemn himself. Happy is the person that does not condemn himself. Happy is he. If you're unhappy, it's probably because you're condemning yourself about you not being enough, you not doing enough, you not doing this or you doing this too much or that too much. or You've done this or you failed here. You blew it there. So you're unhappy. Why? Because you're being condemned. You feel condemned and you can't be happy when you're condemned. But happy is the one that says, you know what? Enough is enough. I'm not condemning myself anymore. Not another day in my life. Number two, the second reason the devil uses condemnation is because condemnation robs us of the power to pray. Boy, when you pray, I don't want you to ever again blurt out some mealy mouth, flimsy, flamsy, mamsy, pamsy, watered down, milk toast prayer. Oh, God, if you will. You know, this isn't mother. May I? When Elijah prayed in James chapter five, James retells us how Elijah prayed. He said Elijah, verse 17, was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed that it would not rain and it didn't rain for three and a half years. He prayed earnestly. Does that mean he prayed for like ah, screaming and yelling? Ah. You don't have to pray like that. You have to speak. The Bible doesn't say you have to, like, get in a shouting match with the mountain. It says speak to the mountain. Speak to it. Do you know, I'm speaking to you right now, but I'm not shouting at you. Now, I might, but I'm not right now. (laughs) Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. There's a reason he says it that way, because he wants you to know Elijah had his problems. Elijah went through depression. Elijah went through fear. Elijah went through feeling like giving up. Elijah went through feeling like nobody else cared. Nobody else knew him. Nobody else was understood him. No, we've all felt that self-pity spirit. So Elijah dealt with what we did. But Elijah, when he prayed, man, that it would not rain, it did not rain for three and a half years. And then look at what verse 18 says. And then he prayed again. And the heavens poured out rain. Now, I don't know if he I don't know if he prayed in that three and a half years. He might not have prayed once. Like if you say, well, I feel so condemned, I don't don't feel like I can pray because I haven't prayed much like they used to tell me in the Catholic Church when I where I grew up. Oh, if you weren't here last Sunday, like they serve the Eucharist. Come on, got any Eucharist people here. He served the Eucharist, the body and blood of Jesus. They serve it every Sunday. Now we do it once a month. We used to do it every every Sunday. And um, but it, I, I don't want it to ever become a ritual. I want you to do it. You can do it every day. I've, I've taught on this and on, and and and, and it's, communion is amazing. But it's not my point for, is that what my point is, is that they would tell us like if I came to church on Easter because I was a, I was I was a C and E Catholic <laughs> Christmas and Easter. That's when I went. But if you if you show up one Sunday and they'll tell you, at least they did back then, I don't know what they do now. But back then they said, if you weren't here last week, you can't take communion this week. What the heck? What the heck is wrong with people? Like, why would you withhold the body and blood of Jesus from somebody because of their attendance? Like that is stupid. And Jesus didn't die for us to be to stay stupid. But so here we don't even know. We don't even know if Elijah prayed for three and a half years. We know he prayed in verse 17 that it wouldn't rain and it didn't rain for three and a half years. And then it says in verse 18, then he prayed again. 
Like he might it might he might have gone three and a half years without ever talking to God. Now, I don't think that, but I'm trying to illustrate. I'm trying to illustrate to you his prayer still worked no matter what happened in between. No matter how many times he prayed, no matter how often he prayed, no matter what his prayer life was like when he prayed, heaven listened. When he prayed, things changed. When he prayed, the earth moved. When he prayed, the rain stopped. When he prayed again, the rain came. And he's a man with a nature like ours, like you have the power to pray that way, too. But you know what's stopping you? Condemnation. You're not enough. You're not strong enough. You're not powerful enough. Well, Elijah wasn't enough. He ran away from Jezebel. He got depressed and said, Lord, kill me. I want to die now. So he's suicidal. He's depressed. He's running away from a woman and he is and, and he feels like giving up and he's self pity to the he's, he has self pity to the point where he thinks he's the only one serving God. And God says, uh, uh, by the way, Elijah, there are seven thousand other prophets. When he's like, I'm the only one, God, I'm the only prophet remaining in, in Israel. And God said, there's seven thousand. Like if you don't if you don't do what you're supposed to do, somebody else will do it. Like I got seven thousand other prophets that can do what you what you can do. In other words, stop having a pity party. You're not the only one dealing with depression. You're not the only one dealing with anxiety. You're not the only one who's been victimized. You're not the only one that's been accused. I get accused all the time in my mind. But every time I know how to answer, I know how to respond. I know how to throw down the accuser. What shall we say to these things? There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ. What shall we say to these things? If God is for me, who can be against me? What shall we say to these things? He that did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not also with him freely give us all things? What shall we say to these things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? What shall we say to these things? God is the one who justifies. I will not be condemned another day in my life. That's what we must say to these thoughts. Listen. I told you there were three three reasons the devil condemns. Number one, because it robs us of happiness. Number two, because it robs us of prayer. It robs us of power in prayer. And number three, it robs us of reaching souls. It robs when we feel condemned, then we don't reach others. John three seventeen after verse 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Verse 17 says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. He sent his son to save it. But when you feel condemned, you won't tell other people about Jesus. Why would you want to bring them? I used to I used to be so miserable as a Christian because of all the all the other Christians. that would tell me you don't do this enough and you don't do that enough and and put this bondage on me. So I didn't want to tell others like I was made to be an evangelist when I was first saved, like I was a soul winner. I led everybody I ran into. I preached to them and and most of them got saved. But then I met these Christians that were like, well, you don't do this enough and you didn't do this enough. and You shouldn't necessarily do that and you shouldn't say this. And you and now I'm like all of a sudden. And then they told me you, you, you can't do this and you can't have this and you can't do this. And, you can't, and all these rules. And I was like, I don't want to be an evangelist anymore because I don't want other people to feel the misery I feel right now. Why did I feel that way? Condemnation. Condemnation. Now I'm back to be an evangelist again. You say, well, aren't you a pastor? Yeah, I'm that, too. I mean, I'm, I'm whoever you need me to be. If you're not saved, I'm an evangelist. If you're saved, I'm a pastor. If you're stupid, I'm a teacher. <laughs> Just playing with you. All right. So watch this now. Go over to Revelation chapter 12. This is what this is how we're going to deal with condemnation. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10 and 11. We'll close with this with this concept here. So John says, then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, and this is a, this is there is a loud voice trying to tell you something. He's trying to tell a loud voice is speaking to you right now, saying now. Remember, there is therefore now no condemnation, it says now salvation. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of his Christ have come. So he lists four things. Now, look, I got to explain something to you. Jesus didn't give us these four things in the book of Revelation. He gave us these four things when he died and rose from the dead. 
So why now is he saying now these things have come now salvation has come the power has come the kingdom of God has come and the authority of his Christ have come now they've come or now they've shown up now these four gifts salvation power the kingdom of God and authority now these four things have shown up when do they show up in our lives like we could first of all all four of these things were given to you at the moment you were born again When Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, these four things were established that you are now salvation has been given to you, uh, power, the kingdom of God and the authority of the Christ, like to walk in this kind of power of healing and miracles and this kind of authority to speak to the rain and command to stop, to speak to the mountain and command it to move, to walk in this kind of power, to walk in this kind of authority where demons walk backwards when you run. When you walk into the room, demons walk backwards. This kind of authority, this kind of power, it's in you the moment you get born again. But it it, it doesn't come. You can't enjoy it until you do something about it. You don't enjoy your salvation. Look at what he says. You don't enjoy the power. You don't you're not enjoying. It doesn't just mean having fun with it, but it also means experiencing it in a way where you're where you're operating in this kind of power and you're you're operating. You're not just saved, but you're living saved. You're not just you don't just have power, but you're using the power. You're not just in the kingdom of God. You're advancing the kingdom of God. You're not just walking in. You don't just have authority, but you are walking in your God given authority and your God given destiny. When does that happen? When verse 10 says for the accuser of the brethren has been thrown down, who accuses them before God day and night. In other words, all four of these things are yours right now, this moment, but you don't enjoy them and they don't show up in your life and they don't they don't start manifesting in your life. They don't start they don't start flourishing in your life until you deal with the accuser. He says, for the accuser of the brethren has been thrown down, who accuses them before God day and night. He says, and so how do we throw down the accuser since this the accuser is telling you're not saved or you're, you, you don't you don't have power or you blew it so you can't pray with authority. Look, you see, this is what is accusing you. You failed so you can't walk in your authority. You failed so you're a bad representative of the kingdom of God. Let me tell you something. You know what we are? We're trophies of God's grace to this world. Not because we're so good and holy, but because we we know that God has been merciful to us. My failures are trophies to God because he can show me that even in my failures, those can't stop me. Those can't condemn me because there's no condemnation for I'm in Christ. I'm hidden in. Remember that old podium I used to have? It had like this glass enclosure like this is all modern and hip. It's just the pole. But it used to have one. I used to have one that had this enclosure. Like if you imagine me like hiding underneath it. Like like right now, if you threw something at me, it would still hurt. But if I had that enclosure around me, no matter what you throw at me, it won't hurt because it won't hit me because I'm in I'm hidden in the podium. And the Bible says when we're born again, we're hidden in Christ. So no matter what the devil throws at us, it can't hurt us because we're because he is our defender, our glory and the shield all about us. And they overcame him by three things. The blood of the lamb. The word of their testimony, that's not just what God's done in your life, it's what God says, it's the word. I'm testifying that greater is he that is in me than he's in the world. I'm testifying that no weapon formed against me shall prosper. I'm testifying, you know, with and then they loved not their lives. They did not love their life even unto death. In other words, they knew there was a better life in Christ and they knew that in Christ they had everything they needed. So it didn't matter if they were living in Christ on earth or living in Christ in heaven. They knew it's a better life. They're not settling for a life outside of Christ. He's saying, look, you have to make up your mind. I'm not settling for a life outside of Christ. I don't love that life. 
I do love my life in Christ, but I don't love a life outside of him. I love my life in him. But I know that in him I'll live in heaven. I'll live in earth. I will live victoriously in either place. So it doesn't matter what happens to me at the end of the day. I'm going to spend eternity with him in heaven. And so are you. And so I'm not attaching myself. I'm not attaching myself to this world and what this world can give me. I'm already detached from that and I'm attached to who God said I am and all that he is and all that he's done for me and all that he wants in my life. I saw somebody outside in lobby earlier today and he came to the early service and he said, when you said they overcame him by the blood of the lamb, he said, I had this vision. I don't know if it was right then or prior to that, but he said, I had this vision that the devil was accusing me and saying, you haven't done enough and you have failed. And so you so you're you're not going to make it. And he said in this vision, He said to the devil, he said, you can't cross the bloodline. You can't cross the bloodline. And he said, the devil said to him, you're right. I know I can't. The devil knows the devil knows that the blood is the most powerful force in the universe. And how did they overcome the accuser by the blood of the lamb? Like you're never going to make it. Sorry, you can't cross the bloodline. You're a failure. Sorry, you can't cross the bloodline. But look at what you did. Sorry, it doesn't cross the bloodline. The blood has washed it away. You'll never make it. Sorry, too late. The blood of Jesus has already finished the work inside of me. Greater is he that's in me than he's in the world. Sickness can't cross the bloodline. And if it does, you got to push it back. No, get, get out. The blood of Jesus has healed me by his stripes. I'm healed. I'm forgiven. I'm healed. There's no condemnation. I'm not going to listen to the accuser of the brethren any longer. Not another day in my life. He'll he'll still speak. But I got something better. The blood, the word and a life that is beyond anything this world could ever give me. Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for listening to the Gregory Dickow podcast today. If this podcast has encouraged or inspired you in any way, we'd love for you to share it with a friend, a family member or someone, you know, who would benefit from these messages and make sure to subscribe if you haven't already. So you never miss an episode.